Remain standing for the sermon text from Romans 3, starting in verse 9. Give your ear to God's word. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for his blessings on its reading and preaching. Oh God, we come to you and to this text needing your spirit to help us believe its truth. In particular, to believe how bad our sin really is. How sinful our sin really is. And so help us to grow in our understanding both of you and of ourselves, and the great redemption that you have accomplished for us, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We ask for this help for his sake, the sake of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to the sin of works righteousness. Before Christ met Paul on that road to Damascus, Paul had up to that point spent his whole life trying to earn a righteousness before God on the basis of his works. Paul kept the law, he said, to the letter. He was the Pharisee uh, in that in that parable, remember, of the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying at the temple and the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The unsaved pre-Christian Paul was proud of his religious achievements, proud of his obedience to the law, and he figured God that, that God was quite pleased as well with him. He thought he had a righteousness before God that was based on how well he kept God's commandments. In Philippians 3, 4-6, Paul describes how he viewed himself before he became a Christian. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Faultless. Later in verse 9, Paul says that he had been trying to create, quote, a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. If we could interview Paul, we might ask him, Paul, what changed? What changed in your view of yourself when you became a Christian? Why did you stop seeing your obedience as ground, as the ground of your justification? What convinced you that your 
righteousness wasn't all that righteous, that you couldn't be righteous before God on the basis of your works. How do you think Paul would answer that question? He would say something like this. You see, I never realized until I met Christ that I am actually the chief of sinners. And that all my works, all my obedience on its own is nothing more than a pile of rubbish, a pile of dung. Until the Spirit circumcised my heart on the way to Damascus, I didn't realize how radically ruined and wretched I was. My sin goes deeper than I imagined. And and my best acts of faithfulness to God on my best day, my best faithfulness to all His commandments cannot move me one inch toward the salvation that I desperately needed. We know Paul might say something like that because it's the kind of thing that he says over and over in his letters. The sin of works righteousness. The sin of taking pride and keeping God's commandments. The, the sin of believing that your obedience to God will, will further establish his favor toward you and make him love you more. That sin is kind of a respectable sin, right? It's, it's a sin that most Christians tolerate in themselves and in others. In fact, it might even seem a little harsh to you that I'm calling it a sin, a wretched sin. Perhaps you'd rather call it a struggle. You'd, perf- you'd prefer to say, I struggle with thinking that I can earn favor with God. You know, I, I slip into that every once in a while. I struggle with thinking that my obedience has intrinsic value in my standing before God. I, I struggle with thinking that my choices and way of life make me better than others who are less enlightened on certain issues and less obedient, therefore. After all, you think, isn't it a good impulse to want to please God? Is it, is it really a sin that I get a little too focused on my performance when I think about my standing before God? Hasn't Paul himself, in these early chapters of Romans, hasn't he been talking about the importance of not just hearing the law, but obeying it? Isn't there, isn't there some redeeming value to this struggle? When we see someone with a works righteous mentality, especially if that someone is ourselves, we tend to categorize them as overzealous and maybe even super spiritual, upholders of righteousness. At least a works righteousness spirit promotes righteous standards and righteous living, we might say. And righteous living is a good thing, right? Pleasing God is good, right? The problem is that it's impossible to please God unless you first recognize how depraved you are, how deep your sin goes, and how incapable you are of pleasing God on your own. The only reason Paul was able to glory in his works as an unbeliever, the only, you know, before he was a Christian, the only reason he could take pride in his so-called faultless obedience to God's law is that he had a superficial understanding of his sinfulness. That's the only way something like that is possible. He didn't know how profound a sinner he was. He didn't see himself as the chief of sinners. He saw himself as the chief worker of righteousness. He was blind to the filth, the filthiness that accompanied his works. They were shot through with filth that he couldn't see. The failure to recognize the sinfulness of sin at work in our hearts is itself a sin. It's an aspect of our depravity. It's, it's a universal sin. It's a sin that plagues all of humanity. 
and it doesn't just disappear when you become a Christian and you begin to understand the sinfulness of your sin. Paul wrote in Romans, he wrote Romans 3, 9 to 20 to Christians who knew about their sin, but who needed to be reminded of the sin that they had been saved from. They needed to be reminded that no one can be righteous before God. No one can be good enough. You can't do enough good. Our works, which are filthy rags in themselves, can do nothing to make God love us or accept us. Every human being is a natural born slave to sin. Every person in here, including the guy behind the pulpit. And the law is powerless to rescue anyone from that enslavement. The law just makes things worse, as we'll see. It only highlights sin's powerful reign over you until Christ meets you and gives you his own righteousness. In the first two verses of our passage, Paul begins by establishing the universal power of sin. And if you're following in the outline, that first point, sin reigns over every person, over every person who has ever been born since Adam. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 on your handout. What then? Do we Jews possess an advantage? Not at all. For we have already accused all people, both Jews and Greeks, Greeks is sort of a stand-in for Gentiles more broadly, of being under the power of sin. Just as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So Paul returns to his question that he keeps asking and addressing about whether Jews have any advantage. Now, if, if, if we were to give Romans 2 and 3 only a, a cursory or shallow reading, we might be tempted to think that Paul is having a hard time making up his mind. In Romans 2, Paul seemed to be saying that the Jews have no advantage because God is impartial and he judges everyone according to their own works. But then he asks at the beginning of chapter 3, what then is the advantage of the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? We're thinking none in every way. And he surprises us by saying much in every way. And now in verse 9, he goes back. He asks a similar question, do the Jews have an advantage? But this time his answer is not at all. So which is it, Paul? Do they or do they not have an advantage? Well, the answer is yes and no. It depends on what you mean by the question. Yes, the Jews have a salvation historical priority, and the promises that God made to them throughout the Old Testament, throughout salvation history, will be fulfilled. We looked at that last week. But no. The other answer is no. Individual Jews are not exempt from the responsibility of their sins. Jews who rebel against God will answer to God for their transgressions on judgment day. And God is righteous in both of those answers, in both of those ways. And Paul's point in verse 9 is that every human being, every Jew and every Gentile alike, is by nature in ourselves a child of wrath, born under the power of sin. Colossians 3.6 says that by nature we are all sons of disobedience. So, so disobedience is our natural spiritual father. And we are chips off the old block. We're chips off the old block of disobedience. Even people who are born into the people of God as many of you children have been, are not exempt from the radical ruin and wretchedness of sin. You didn't escape the wreckage of sin just because you were baptized as an infant or just because you've been in church since before you were born. By nature, there is none righteous, not even one. 
Now you might be asking at this point, what, what does Paul mean? I mean, isn't that overstating it? Because throughout the Old Testament, we see these places where God calls people righteous. Even in Psalm 14, which is one of the first place Paul goes to in this series of Old Testament quotes, even in Psalm 14, after it says there is none righteous, later in the same psalm it says God delivers the righteous. <laughs> well, who are they? Well, the, the righteous in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are people who realize that they are not righteous. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the point there. It, the, no one is righteous in themselves, and when you recognize that, you have become righteous by God's grace. And so that's what it means here when he says there is none righteous. By nature, in ourselves, no one does anything good. And we don't just sin, we are sinful. We're saturated with sin. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sons of sin. Sin is our Lord, our King, and apart from God's grace, sin reigns supreme in us and over us all the time. Sin doesn't coerce us to sin against our will. That's not the, that's not the kind of dictator it is. We willingly serve our dictator. We're obedient slaves to our master. Sin. We're co-conspirators with sin against God. In Scripture, sin doesn't only refer to sinful deeds, actions. Sin also is a power, a dominion, a ruler. In Romans 5, Paul describes sin as reigning. Chapter 6, he says that sin enslaves and rules and exercises lordship or dominion. People are described in Romans 6 as slaves to sin or as being freed from sin's reign. Verse 9 in chapter 3 teaches that every person since Adam and Eve comes into this world as a slave to that power of sin. It reigns over every person. And the, and the reign of sin is comprehensive. Sin doesn't just reign over every person. It reigns over the whole of every person. As we see in verses 10 to 18. Our depravity is radical, all-encompassing. Your sinfulness is thoroughgoing. Wickedness pervades every square millimeter of your being. The way water fills up and saturates and engulfs the whole of a sunken wooden ship. From verse 10 all the way through verse 18, Paul strings together a series of Old Testament quotes which prove that we, by nature, are corrupt to the core. Our hearts and minds are corrupt to the core. Our words and deeds are corrupt to the core. The, the catena of Old Testament quotes from verse 10 to verse 18 reveals a bleak view of mankind's ability to do anything good, anything pleasing to God. Paul had a dark view of human ability. Not before he became a Christian, but after. He believed that sin had wrapped its tentacles so tightly around every human heart that it was impossible for anyone to keep the law of God. This miserable condition applies not only to the Greeks, not only to the Gentile pagans who never darkened the doors of a church, but also to God's covenant people, to those who have been practicing biblical religion since before they can remember. So let's read the first few verses in Paul's string of Old Testament excerpts, starting in verse 10. Just as it is written, there is none righteous, no, uh, not even one. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now these verses <laughs> confront us with the universality of sin. There is none, not even one. There is none, there is none, there is none. There is not even one. All have turned aside. Those are direct quotes. Paul hardly could have emphasized more the worldwide, all-encompassing scope of our sin problem and its devastation to everyone. 
No one on earth can understand the things of God apart from his grace. No one on earth could ever in a billion years seek after God apart from his grace. Everyone's thinking is futile and useless apart from Christ and his Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about yourself? And nowhere is the universal scope of sin more obvious than in human words, in your words, in human speech. Verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Here Paul portrays the destructive nature of sin, the destructive nature of the tongue in particular, with color, colorful images from the Old Testament. The, the sinner's throat is an open grave out of which precedes death. Now remember these, all these from verse 10 to 18 is all Old Testament quotes. And so he's drawing here to, to create this, this image, this collage. The sinner's throat is an open grave out of which proceeds death. Now, our primary instrument of sin we need to see, you need to see, your primary instrument of sin is, without a doubt, your mouth. Most marriage problems are not about money or sex or how to raise the children, what to do in the home, this question or that question. Most marriage problems have to do with the steady stream of death flowing out of the throats of the two married people. In school, we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It'd be more accurate if we had said, sticks and stones can only break my bones, but words can truly hurt people. Proverbs 18:21 says that the power of life and death lie where? In the tongue. Proverbs 16:24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 12:25, anxiety weighs down the heart but a kind word cheers it up. Proverbs 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Children, when you, when you talk to your brothers and sisters, interact with your, with your siblings, is your throat an open grave that issues forth death and destruction? Sometimes, right? Or is your mouth a fountain of life? Maybe sometimes that too. Husbands, wives, parents. What are you doing with your words in your home, in your marriage, in your family? What, what kind of instrument are they? Do they build up or tear down? Do they convey life or death? Do they heal or hurt? Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like a sword. Like swords, plural. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. In Romans 3, 13 and 14, I want you to see that progression if you look at it there on your handout or in your, in your open Bible, do you see the progression from the throat to the mouth to the lips and mouth? See that? These words of death, where are they coming from? Where, where, where are they coming from? What's their direction? What's their source? 
it's the heart, which is where they are born. Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. I've been a sinner long enough to know one thing for certain. And being a pastor has only confirmed this. If you're not actively fighting to regain control of this area right here, your mouth. If you're not diligently keeping watch over what your heart sends up through your throat to your tongue and lips, then I'm beyond certain that the enemy is using your words to win victories in your relationships. That's just true. In particular, if you're not guarding your mouth and keeping watch of the door, over the door of your lips, then the enemy is winning victory after victory in your relationships with the people closest to you, the people that you love the most. The words of reckless people destroy individuals and they wreak havoc on communities. So do tongues that deceive. Some of you are suffering the brokenness of long-time relationships because of the damage done by these kinds of words, deceptive words, reckless words. The reason marriages and churches sometimes split is, is not that there are differing visions or disagreements about how things should be run. They, they always happen because of sin. And the instruments that sin uses most often to break fellowship are listed right there in verses 13 and 14. With their tongues they deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. The, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. If you can keep deceptiveness and venom and cursing and bitterness from flowing out of your mouth, then you are wise. And you're the type of person then who brings healing to all around you, to all of your relationships, and to every institution that you're a part of especially the church. Individuals with healing tongues build up. Marriages with healing tongues stay together and grow in grace. Churches with healing tongues bear much fruit. Children with healing tongues bless their parents and their siblings and infuse life into their families Children, you have the power to do this in your own family by being a source of life from your heart out through your mouth in your home. What are you spraying in your home out of your mouth? Parents with healing tongues raise joyful and vibrant children. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Consider how a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly 
venom. James 3, 2 to 8. The tongue might be the epicenter of evil, but the sin that begins in our hearts and comes out of our throats and mouths also has wide-ranging effects in society. Verses 15 to 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. They leave ruin and wretchedness in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. Now, of course, we can't separate uh, words and deeds, right? Words are deeds, in a sense. And so the, the words of death give way to actions of death. But when you read that, can you see your own tendencies in these verses, what I just read? It, uh, do you see your feet as swift? To shed blood, or is this just too extreme? It's, you know, it, it stopped applying to you at this point. The only, the only thing that has kept your feet from physically murdering someone during your life is the grace of God, His special grace in giving you a new heart and his common grace in providing police and prisons and repercussions if you decide to murder the person that you hate or the person that's standing in your way somehow. If you don't believe that, then you don't understand who you are. If God were to lift his restraining grace from you, if he were to stop pulling you back from your natural-born tendencies then in no time flat you'd turn into the murdering son of disobedience that you were born to be. So do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe it's really that bad? We, we see this sort of thing when, when, you know, we're all law-abiding citizens until there's no law, right? And, until there, and the rioting and the looting takes place and people are doing things that they swore they'd never do two days earlier. We're the same way. Do you really believe it's that bad, though? Do you believe this about yourself? Do you, or do you think that you're a pretty decent person? In other words, do you think that you're better than King David? David was a man after God's own heart. The Spirit lived in him. He was born again. He, he knew God. He, he was more intimate with God than many. But after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, his feet were swift to shed the blood of her innocent husband, Uriah. Now, not long before all that went down, you probably could not have convinced David that such a fall was possible. David desperately needed a savior every moment of his life. And so do you. So do you. You're more depraved than you think. You're more prone to wander than you realize. Your, the sinfulness of your sin is worse than you have ever imagined and will ever imagine in this life. You're corrupt to the core, and you need a Savior who will bring you all the way to the finish line. I think of the last verse in that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you feel your proneness to wander away from the God that you love? If not, 
you're in serious danger of wandering away from the God you love. Thanks be to God that we have an eternal high priest who prays for us and who is able to save us to the end, to the uttermost, despite our inherent unrighteousness. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus, our eternal high priest, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus died to pay for your sins and he lives to pray for you when you sin, to intercede for you. He's got it covered. And you need those prayers. I need those prayers. We depend on the prayers of Christ lest we end up like King Saul rather than King David or or lest we end up like Judas rather than Peter. The only reason Peter repented after he denied Jesus is that Jesus prayed for him to repent. Remember what Jesus told Simon Peter earlier in the, in the, on, on that night, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. And, Jesus, and Peter said, Lord, I'll go all the way to prison with you and even to death. You see, Peter was out of touch with the sinfulness of his own sinful heart. He, he didn't have a clue who he was. He didn't realize how bad it was. And, and and what he was actually capable of. A little later, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We need the Savior all the way to the end. We need his sustaining grace and his sustaining prayers during every moment of our journey to heaven, to the celestial city. You need the grace of God all the way to your very last breath lest you become, lest you turn into a lying, the lying, lusting, bitter, murdering, gossiping, useless, violent, Christ-denying wretch that you're perfectly capable of becoming. We might get the impression in verses 13 to 17 that our sin problem is primarily horizontal, a a sociological reality, a relational problem with other people. But in verse 18, Paul concludes his string of Old Testament texts by pointing out the theological root of sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Our sin problem is fundamentally a vertical reality. Our sin is foremost against God. We murder other people, whether physically or in our hearts, not primarily because we hate other people, but because we hate God and His law. And really we want God dead, but the only thing we can do is kill His image bearers. You know, burning God in effigy by killing other humans. Our rebellion is against God, no matter what the sin is. David's David's sins of adultery and murder, no doubt, had horizontal consequences. There were ramifications for his family, for Bathsheba's family, for Uriah's family, for all of Israel. But when David confessed his sin, he said to God in Psalm 51, against you and you only, you alone, have I sinned. Every sin is first an offense against God. What's the good news in this passage? It's not that God has given us the law. The law itself is good. There's no problem with the law. It's holy and righteous. Paul's going to say that in Romans 7, right? But the law cannot free anyone from sin. 
The law condemns all. It condemns everyone in its path. And it justifies absolutely no one. Instead of taking care of our sin problem, instead of dealing with our profound unrighteousness, the law makes our situation worse. It just exacerbates the problem by exposing the depths of our depravity. It's not its fault. The law reveals the sinfulness of our sin. In fact, it's not only not its fault, it's, it's a blessing in the end that it works that way to those who end up believing. We see this in verses 19 to 20, the, the role of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those in the law. We, we might translate that under the law, in the realm of the law. That every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be guilty before God. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous before him. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. It gives you a knowledge of sin. Not, not, not the kind of knowledge that, oh, I didn't know that was a sin. It, it gives you this deep appreciation for just how sinful you are. Now, in verse 19, those in the law refers first to the Jews. And, and the law, which in verse 19, by the way, refers to the Old, Old Testament, it's... it's because those verses, those Old Testament quotes in verses 10 to 18, those are from, actually not from the law. They're not from the Pentateuch, not from Moses. They're, they're mostly from the Psalms. You can look in your, if you have a reference Bible, uh, you know, one from Isaiah and kind of a shout out to Ecclesiastes, but it, mostly the Psalms. And so the law that Paul's talking about in verse 19 is the whole Old Testament, which was given directly to Israel. And, and so the logic of verse 19 is that if Israel can't measure up, if, if not even one Jew can be righteous, if the people of God, the people who were the object of God's election and love and grace can't produce righteousness by means of, of obeying God's commandments, well, then by extension, no one on earth is righteous. No one can do this. Everyone is under condemnation. Everyone, as it says in the end of verse 19, is guilty before God. The law shuts the mouth of everyone if it shuts every Israelite's mouth. So if the Jews can't even be declared righteous before God by the works of the law, then it's certainly impossible for any other person to get right with God by obeying his commandments. That's not the means by which you can get right with God. You can get right with God, but not on the basis of your own works, holiness, goodness. Works righteousness is ruled out, and it's ruled out for everyone. No flesh, no work of any human can work his way into righteousness. In fact, Paul says at the end of verse 20, the only thing the law can do for the unrighteous person is make him more aware of his sin problem. The law has no power to make you righteous, no, no more power to make you righteous than a speed limit sign has the power to make you go the speed limit. If you're, if you're speeding and you come up on a, on a speed limit sign, the sign itself can't slow you down. It might, might even speed you up, right? But, but it can and does make you aware of your transgression. And if you have kids in the car who can read both speed limit signs and speedometers, then the knowledge of your sin quickly becomes difficult to suppress. The law can't make us do what the law requires. It's powerless to do that. Well, where does that leave us then? We've come to the end of the sin section of Romans. I didn't count how many sermons, but it's been several. And the diagnosis is grim. It's, it's at least worse than we thought. In reality, it's still worse then we've come to realize that will always be true. And this isn't a popular message. As I said in 
Sunday school, Paul, Paul's putting, putting, putting a pretty big dent in our self-esteem. He's lowering our self-esteem, which is necessary. It's not a popular message, but without this message, there's no hope. Because the sin problem remains whether we acknowledge it or not. No one wants to hear their doctor tell them that the tumor is malignant. But without that message, there's no hope of getting a cure, of doing what you need to do. Because the cancer problem remains whether it is acknowledged or not. It's the cruel doctor who withholds the truth because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings or disappoint you or be the bearer of bad news. It's, it's the kind and loving doctor who tells you like it is while your cancer is still curable. Paul is a kind and loving doctor. And in the very next passage, starting in Romans 3.21, he presents the cure. And, we're, and then we're, we're going to get to meditate on the cure for more weeks than we meditated on the problem, the sin. But we had to, to go through chapters 1, 2, and 3 to get to the rest, to get to the good news, to properly understand the good news. But let's just jump ahead I can hardly wait to get to verse 21. Let's read 21 and 22. The cure for our deadly disease. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Just think about that. It's been revealed. You can see it. You can know it. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There actually was, I said there, no, there was no Jew who obeyed perfectly. There was actually one Jew who kept God's law perfectly. One man who has been declared righteous before God by the works of the law. The God-man, Jesus Christ, who was without sin, lived a faultless life on your behalf and then died on the cross in your place, for your sake. You get his righteousness, the righteousness of his perfect life. You get the atonement of your sins that he won for you on the cross. You get those because he gives them to you. And, and his, this righteousness that he gives you, his righteousness becomes yours when you believe in him. And the good news is even better now that Paul has spent two chapters explaining the diagnosis, the bad news. Now the good news is even better. There's, there's something intensely comforting about realizing that God knows your sins and your sinfulness exhaustively, far better even than you do. He, he knows your depraved condition perfectly and thoroughly. He's more in tune with the wickedness that resides in your heart that lingers there even though you've been saved in, in your heart and your mind and your words and your deeds than you are. He knows how you rationalize your sins. He knows how you murder in your heart. He knows the inner cursings and, and bitterness that no one else can see because you hide it well. He knows all the sins that even that you're unwilling to acknowledge, and yet he loves you. And he's pleased to give you his righteousness at no cost to you and at a very high cost to him. Isn't it intensely comforting? To, to know of that, that someone doesn't just love you or doesn't just know all your sin, but both. I mean, there's people who know your sin, but you know, maybe do they love you? There's people who love you, but it might be because they don't know your sin, right? That, that, but God knows better than anyone your sin and loves you more than anyone. 
Is that comforting? The death of God's Son on the cross cost you nothing. And it cost God everything. There's no God like our pardoning God. The prophet Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in showing his steadfast love to you. The the iniquity that God pardons in you is real and it's great. Your sin goes deeper and higher and it's longer and wider than you know. But God's steadfast love for you in Christ goes infinitely deeper and higher and it's infinitely longer and wider than even your sin. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice that you have not, that you have not left us in our miserable, wretched condition. Oh God, you could have left us there and been perfectly righteous and just and holy, but you have decided to redeem us, to rescue us from the miry pit that we could never escape from on our own, that we could never pull ourselves out of. God, we thank you for your redemption. We thank you for your salvation that you've given to us freely. This week, give us grace to walk in it, to live out of it with gratitude and obedience. Help us to delight in you even as you delight in us, even as you delight to show us your steadfast love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.